Welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Hi, welcome back to Employee of the Month show. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and today I sat down with Sarah Benacasa. Um, it's been such a wild ride to be in Los Angeles and attend parties at like Moby's house where he has his own lake, or there at least there was a man-made lake near his house. I don't know if it's called Lake Mobagon. Um, but it's also been good to be around comedians who I always found were successful right away and in my head much more ambitious, but also just genuinely talented. And one of those is Sarah Benacasa, um, who's an excellent writer. You should definitely check out her book, Agora Fabulous. And I was just excited to see how someone who lives with so much angst and certainly writes about that angst is also really productive. I, I'm just a great admirer of her because she talks about sex, hers and other people's, and I don't think I could ever do that. Also delves into politics. You probably know her from her imitations of Sarah Palin and lately has been getting more into talking quite candidly about her own struggles with mental illness. And it was just a joy. She's just a lovely human being above all else. But it is good to see like how people can struggle and then still get their shit done. And that's what Sarah Benacasa does. Uh, enjoy our interview. Are you excited to be here? I'm excited to be here. I'm, I'm very relaxed. Oh, good. I hope that I encourage people to feel relaxed. I'm thrilled to have you on my podcast. And I have to say the one thing about being like an artist, I don't know what to call us. I call myself a, a writer and host of Employee of the Month, but what I do like about it is being is feeling very relaxed about the nice thing about not working in a cubicle yes well it's it's nice i was thinking today you know that i get paid to i was looking at my my bank account (laughs) and reflecting that i have enough money to you know right now to last me uh through the end of next month and then i have a you know i have I have checks coming in, but I have to complete work in order to get those checks. And I don't know when those checks will be delivered because when you work freelance, as, as you know, and as I'm sure the people who are listening who are freelancers know, you know, it can be 30 days, 60 days. It's, it's been six months at times in my life. You never I'm... know. And so I was feeling a little insecure about it. And then I thought, yeah, Sarah, but you're getting paid to do exactly what you want with your life. And that's priceless that's awesome but it is really first of all that's the point of this show is talking about jobs so I'm really happy to start out right away and Mm -hmm. say like this is what it's like to be a freelancer and you're a comedian you also perform and do I don't want to call them lectures but you yeah I give speeches at colleges I talk about mental health awareness and that's my book uh, my memoir which came out last year Agora Fabulous it's about a memoir about dealing with mental health problems so yeah, so I do. I have a lot of different masters. My my tax statements come in from a lot of different places. It was both cathartic and, and nauseating to hear that you also still struggle with these things. Because I would aspire to one day be like you and have you know you've now finished. You're on your second book. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, you finished and you're going to start working on your third book. My third book, which tentatively I'm calling Believers. Great comes out in April of 2014. And the book tentatively known as Believers comes out sometime in 2015. So to me, this equals stability. You're, you're on your third book. Oh, I'm so happy about it. Exactly. I'm overjoyed <laughs> about it. But you still stress about money is what it comes down to. Yeah, and, and that's the interesting thing. When we were kids, I thought somebody, when, when any author, it was like Judy Bloom. Like, you know, I'm yes. sure that 
uh, Judy Bloom probably had her times of difficulty, and I, she had a husband at one point who wasn't very supportive of her career, so I'm sure, I, I'm not saying she got automatically rich, but at this point in time, without knowing her personally, I'm guessing she's financially comfortable. You know, like I'm guessing. And uh, Stephen King, for example, pretty sure he's doing well and has been yes. for many years. So when I was a kid, I thought that being an author meant you were automatically Judy Bloom or multiply by a few million Stephen King. I thought you just got rich. Or if you were on TV, if you had a part on a soap opera, Completely. you were rich. Or you were in a commercial, you must be wealthy. And in fairness, in terms of the writers, writing was valued at high. I mean, first of all, it was high, harder. It was more challenging to get published in that there weren't as many outlets and there certainly wasn't self-publishing. That's true. But at the same time, people did get paid more for writing articles. I mean, I used to make my living writing articles and then today, you know, I was begging for $50. Which is nuts. It really is nuts. It's, it's um, undignified. And it was so funny because someone was like, congratulations on your new job. And I didn't have the heart to be like, I'm getting um, paid $50 for it. Yeah. That's my new job. Oh, yeah. I, I mean... Without going into specifics, I have gigs that I do where it's, you know, 50 bucks pop, 75 bucks pop. That's why I do so much stuff. Like, sometimes friends will say, wow, you do so much. That's so cool. And I'm like, yes, thank you. But the reason is not just that I am a workaholic or something. It's because I have to. Yes. If I want to pay bills, I I have to do a bunch of things. And I find that I struggle in terms of the head that's required for writing I need to be really focused for long hours of time that are uninterrupted yeah because uh, for every hour you're going to have maybe 10 minutes for at least in my experience maybe there's 15 minutes of concentrated time and then 45 minutes I need to like think and stare in the ceiling and fuck around and, yeah I mean on a good day maybe in an hour it's different and you know I'm using 30 of those minutes correctly but most of the time it's like 10-15 minutes of the, that hour are correctly used and the rest of the time I'm just like Bleh. and though that that part of my brain is so uh, removed from the other part which is required for producing a show getting even small you know pitching articles um, going out to audition for things like that like that part of the brain is like frenetic and like we need to be doing tons of things that, that requires you to be online and like doing so much stuff at once how do you balance I how do you how do you ask a question that's actually just a question instead of rambling you are not <laughs> rambling I know exactly what you mean um well as I touch my forehead and thought I tend to give attention to the thing that is screaming most so uh, I like to have a lot of pans on the fire so that, uh, because I am a natural procrastinator, um, but I also like to keep busy. So that way, I've, let's say I've got five projects going on. If project one is really screaming for attention because the deadline's tomorrow and I want to procrastinate, I'll always have two, three, four, and five to give some attention to. Sometimes I just really wish that I could be working constantly and then other times I, I've just I have a pattern in my life that's been going on since I was a kid where I work 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 and then burn out and get really depressed or get really really anxious I have, and have some flame out similar genes yes it's fun well, it's I like, like a type a compulsively a work um, I can work for seven days a week for a month six weeks two months and then I, I can't do anything. Right. And then every other stuff falls to shit because you can't meet your obligations that you've set up when you told everybody you were Wonder Woman. And that is really difficult. And that happened to me in uh, 2011 when I was working on the book Agora Fabulous. And I was dating... And this was your first book. It was my first book. And I was dating this guy, Benari Poulton, who's a comedian. And he's a soldier, too. 
and he got deployed to Afghanistan. And I was like, at some point in when we knew he was getting deployed, I had decided to go off Prozac. I'd go off all medication. And I've been on medication since I was 16 for anxiety and depression and had some serious problems at times when I was not properly medicated. So for some reason, I was like, this is fine. I'm doing fine. I can handle this. And um, went off meds, was fine for a few months, was really handling it well. And then I remember he left like July 4th to go over there. And I just lost it. And I, I crashed and burned. And I was in the middle of writing my book. At, uh, and I, I couldn't write. And I couldn't. It was hard to work. And so I actually gave up my apartment in Queens. And I moved in with my parents. And I worked remotely for um, a company called Bookish.com. They were really nice to me and let me work remotely from Jersey. And Did you tell them why you were, were Yes. I told them why. And, and my boss was really, really cool about it. He was really neat That's about it. That's incredible. I mean, one of the things that I so admire about you one of the many things, but is your ability to talk so candidly about what's going on in your own life. And your book, Agora Fabulous, is fabulous. Thank it's you. It's really well written. Um, and I was curious, like, do you feel more vulnerable? Do you feel better writing about such personal things? I think I feel better about it so long as I don't, so long as I feel secure that I haven't disclosed anything that would hurt another person mm -hmm. that's I start to worry about that stuff where do you draw the line for that though because you'll talk about your sex life yeah you'll talk about um you know obviously being agoraphobic you'll talk about things that could be considered more I don't know where do you draw the line I guess I draw the line well with something like where I just talked about Benari like I would never talk about certain personal things that happened with us and we're still friends which makes it easier but I can talk about that, you know, because that was a that was a thing that happened that he was open about in his life. Like, I am going to Afghanistan. This is what is happening. And I can so I can talk about my reaction to that without harming him or I think violating his privacy in any way, because I'm, I'm not talking about his reaction or his feelings or what he said to me. I'm talking about my experience. And as long as I come from a place where it's about my experience, that's fine. I mean, I've been in relationships that didn't go so well, and I've written about um, a, f a couple of them. Now, I haven't been in a lot of bad ones, um, thankfully. I've been in some nice ones, too. But I've written about some difficulties I had in, in relationships, but I made sure to disguise the guy or to turn one guy into two different guys. And to um, it's the kind of thing where you kind of can't avoid with certain situations. Like, if, if you are in a sorority or you were in a sorority in college and you dated the head of the fraternity that lived next door. This is just like my life. I like, know, it's all verbatim. our lives. And he, <laughs> I don't think we had sorority. Maybe we had fraternities. But and yeah. he was, like, abusive to you, let's say, physically abusive. And you never went to the cops or anything. And 15 years later, you're writing a memoir and you want to write about that abuse and that experience. Well, you know, you should change his name and you should change details but you don't need to change the fact that he hit you if that's what actually happened. If, if you know, what happened was that someone committed an act, you can do that. You don't have to go into talking about his private life and the reasons for maybe why he was an abusive person or the fact that he was molested at Boy Scout camp when he was five, because that's not your story. Your story is, dated a guy, he hit me, here's how I reacted. Which brings me... Uh to an article you wrote about over-apologizing. Yes. You wrote this fantastic article for Jezebel. Um, I, I wrote an article about apologizing in the workplace. But I loved your piece. It was so funny and accurate about how 
people tend to over-apologize, but specifically women. <laughs> yeah, There's we apologize to all kinds of things. And one thing that really, I think the article is called, I am so not sorry about my vagina and other yes. apologies we should stop making or something like that. And I wrote that because I noticed, uh, you know, that I was apologizing to like inanimate objects that I bumped into. And I had read the author Sark had written about this. And the self-help author. Yeah, self-help yeah. author Sark had written about this too. And I was like... Into Crayolas. Really loves the Crayolas, loves the drawing. And I was having sex with this gentleman. And he was like, you know, going at it really hard. And that's fine. But I was physically uncomfortable. And what I should have said was, hey, can we try something else? That kind of hurts. Um, but instead what I said was, I'm sorry, my vagina is so sensitive. Like I said that to someone and then I was like, are you crazy? That's what it's supposed to be. That's like saying, I'm sorry, my eyes see things. Right. I'm sorry, my ears hear things. I'm sorry. When I touch a hot stove, I can sense that it is hot and it burns me. Like that's nuts. And that guy, it's not his fault. He was just doing his thing. And you know, we all do things in bed sometimes that make other people uncomfortable or like uh, sometimes I get too bitey like it happens you know and uh somebody just steps and goes like whoa hey maybe you could and that over apologizing culture when you say I'm sorry all the time you apologize eventually for being victimized so you apologize when you know small example um somebody steps on your toe and you say oh I'm sorry oh it, it became pathological for me and I would set up a dynamic in work environments as well as in uh, relationships where I was at fault always mm -hmm. and it was a control thing ultimately of like I immediately think I in any situation I always blame myself yeah and that is actually a way to keep control over something so that I don't have to deal with the consequences that someone might be letting me down and in work, it can be a really dangerous thing, particularly in, I think, our business, but almost any business where you have to appear confident. Oh, yeah. People like it when you're a dick or, or, or they respect it more or you're more likely to get what you want. I mean, I got, you know, a low ball offer on a project um, recently, a few weeks ago, and the old me would have been like, oh, I'm so happy they're at least paying me to do something I love. And the new me is like, you're going to have to pay me more. Like, there are those gigs that are high profile enough that it's like, oh, sure, you know, you want to pay me uh, 75 bucks for 800 words? That's fine. I'll do this because I know this anthology is going to get read or this website is going to get looked at or something like that. Um, there are even times, uh, rare times now, when somebody will want me to do something for free and it's like, holy crap, I'm going to get so much uh, attention and feedback in a positive way for this. I'm going to do it for free. But then there are those things where it's like, no, man, this is going to take a lot of work. You can't just lowball me. Um, and it's fine. That's business because they're lucky. If, if I say yes to a shitty number, then that's better for them. They've got a budget. So it's not a personal thing. But it's just like, no, I'm not going to accept that anymore. I'm going to come back at you and ask for more. And how do you know what to negotiate for? Like, how do you know how much to negotiate for with um, writing, for example? Like... With writing, I kind of figure out what works for me. I feel around. I, I think about stuff I've gotten paid in the past. So one thing that's not helpful, I have a friend who tried to negotiate a, a salary raise somewhere. 
she was like, I mean, I have all these, these expenses. Like I have my cats and I have this nice car that I bought and I have this. And I was like, don't say any of that in the meeting. Don't go into it. If you've made those choices. Those That's are your choices. Right. You can't justify asking Getting for more money because cat. of that. Yeah. yeah. Get a cheaper cat, a dog. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this has to be about your work and what you do and perhaps what you've been paid in the, in the past. Like, you know, I did this equal job at an equal size company for uh, $75,000 a year. So no, I'm not going to accept 60. I'm going to ask for 80. I also have to factor in, will that job actually behoove my chances of moving up to where I belong or will that actually prevent me? So meaning like, Oh yeah, that's a good point if, too. If you're work, if I, if, if it's a certain boss, that's going to be incredibly difficult and I may not be as good at fetching coffee, but I am excellent at churning out scripts. Um, and I'm worried that that somehow, you know, not getting that person's cleaners right and not getting the, the coffee or, or things that aren't really related to what you do as a writer, right. somehow I'm going to screw up in a way that would prevent me from being a writer. I won't take that job. If it's right, if it's being a writing assistant, a, for an incredibly cool person. Like Lena Dunham, who has this yes. reputation of being very nurturing and encouraging her writers and encouraging absolutely. her staff to move on to great things. Right. She's, she, that's absolutely right. She's, she, you know, she's, so it depends on the situation that I would read that situation first before yes. going in. Um, to the extent that you can. I mean, the truth is you never know until you work somewhere who the people you're working with are going to be like. Oh, yeah. I mean, I could, I could say from the outside that if Tom Cruise offered me a job as his assistant, I'd be like, no way, Jose. Yeah. That Scientology just stuff scares me, and I don't even want to know what you're really way like. Way to take a stand, Sarah. But I know. But he might be a real... What if he's actually a really good person and amazing? And, like, what if Scientology's not that bad? <laughs> I'm making judgments. Right, before you even get there. Before I even get the offer to be his assistant. I wanted to ask you, you started, like, at Nerve.com, because I feel like you, like, graduated and then were, like, immediately had these shows and that was the tub show right i um tub talk with sarah b let's see gra like literally graduated or like graduated metaphorically because i feel like we graduate metaphorically in comedy we graduate metaphorically yeah i feel like moving from like bringers or open mics to book shows as a graduation i also feel like moving this is going to sound shitty to new york people and i don't mean it in a bad way but i always looked at the move from new york to los angeles as a kind of graduation because it was an acknowledgement that for certain people, not necessarily for stand-ups. Yeah. You, I think New York has an amazing stand-up scene, and in some ways, uh, I think the work coming out of there is stronger than the work that comes out of here sometimes. That if was like you, you were making a strong point, and then you took the strong point back. I did. I was like, <laughs> I'm sorry. But my, my point, I guess my point is this. Moving to Los Angeles from New York, if you want to be a television writer and creator, is an acknowledgement that there's more work in L.A., and it is sacrificing some of the cool factor of living in New York for some of the real world experience you That's might get That's how I feel. LA. I feel like I moved to the suburbs in Los Angeles in the hope of getting work because I mm -hmm. wanted to make a living. Yeah. Um, but I the mean, joy of living in New York and the, the cultural um, advantages are enormous. And I, like, that's great, but I can't afford to take advantage of those. Right. Without, without the work. Well, I was, you know, I was just, it's funny, I was just talking about a project that I, I felt like I was getting lowballed on, so I came back at them with more. There's a different project that I'm interested in doing where I'm not going to get paid all that much, but it suits my purposes, which is that I want to be able to cover a trip to New York, and it'll cover, I'll break even on a trip to New York to go and do this project. What, what would the job be? You don't have to say who it's for, but what would the job be? Oh, sure. Be? It would just be like a, a, a silly kind of a joke writing gig. Um, but, and, and it would cover, you know, I get to 
be in New York for a few days and hang out with my friends. That sounds fantastic. So that's fantastic, right? That's It's all how much value does the work have to you emotionally and how much value does the work have to you monetarily. So maybe, you know, if somebody offered me this job here in L.A. and they were like, I, I, I might fight more for the money. But because this job serves my actual purpose, which is getting to take a summer trip to New York, yeah, it's different. And it's for a television show? Um, it's just for a comedian. Okay. That's even, that's really neat. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's fun. I think it'll be fun. Um, so you started out with Tub Talk with Sarah B and that was on Nerve? Nerve.com where I would interview like Jonathan Ames and Andy Borowitz and Reggie Watts and John Mulaney in the bathtub. And then getting wet. What was the difference between that and getting wet? Getting wet became was just a version that we did of the show just for free for YouTube. Because after once I was done doing it for Nerve, I, I kind of wanted it to have a wider audience. And mm-hmm. Nerve had its own proprietary player, video player, which was kind of like annoying to embed in things. So it wasn't like it was on YouTube where it could get passed around all the time. This was in like the around like I guess I. I took it off on my own in like 2009 or 2010 or something. Um, I, I, I realized that more than the, whatever, $200 an episode they were paying me, what was more valuable to me was exposure. Mm-hmm. So I chose to say, you know what? I don't want that money anymore. I just want to take this off on my own and do it for free. But it's a way for me to get to meet interesting people and do my own thing and get noticed. And did that lead to Cosmo? That. That was getting in bed. Get in bed. Um, my, uh, I had a show called Get in Bed on Cosmo Radio on Sirius XM. It was from, like in the middle of the night, right? It was 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Oh. east. Oh. And it was 5 to 8 west. So okay. it was, it was drive time out here in LA, but it was nighttime, late night. So cool. It was really fun and interesting. I did it. I hosted, co-hosted for two years and, um, Did you come up with the title and come up with the... No, it was an existing show and they had a producer already and they had a co-host already and then they hired me and then they fired the producer and were like, you're the producer. So, and, and again, I said, you know, oh, so I do. I get more a salary bump they were like no you're still going to be making what you're making so in that case though I was how old was I 27 I had no background in radio and here after just a few months I had been offered a producer job without ever having to even do an internship like hell yeah I was going to say yes even though they weren't going to offer me more money you're hosting your own show yeah. I'm serious and then you get to produce it which means you get to create the direction it goes exactly in. and that was awesome if it were now I would be like you need to pay me more money. Yeah. But then I had a few months experience in radio. Yeah. And so that was what I did. And I did that um, from sort of like summer 2008 to I think fall 2010, the show finally, the show had been on for like five years and the show finally got canceled. And so I was laid off and set free like a little bird. And I was, but I was doing other things besides serious. Like I was doing stand up. I was blogging. I was writing the sh- the book Agora Fabulous. You'd like, already started writing your book. By the time I got laid off, I had already started writing my book. We had the book deal, and I had already started writing the book. When did you get the book deal? I got the book deal in April of 2010. And had you written um, for how long had you been writing for before that? Oh gosh, um, I guess I've been writing in one way or another since, uh, like getting published since yeah. I was about. 16 when I think I got my first clip in like oh, a local wow. newspaper. Okay. So this was when I was 29 that I got this book That's deal. incredible. So you started writing at 16. Just for local newspapers and stuff like that. I know the it's teen just for local, but that's exceptional that. to most of us. But that's how I started. And then, you know, with the advent of the web, I started. I never Has really that went... been invented? Yes, it has. And it's mm-hmm. wonderful. Uh, what's, I, I never really wrote 
built up a big career in magazines, which is too bad because there was a time, as you know, when... I used to make my living They would pay magazines. you some nice money yeah. for doing... And you'd get to go on junkets, maybe, and, like, adventures. And I didn't do that. I didn't write for those kinds. But there are. Yes, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, my, my gentleman caller used to be a senior editor at Maxim Magazine. And when he tells me about, like, the stuff they had, they had a whole closet that was just devoted to... They had to have this whole closet because people sent them so much free stuff, like liquor, computers, like just actual computers. At one point, I think if they had a Segway If people want to know what the address around. for Maxim is, it's 292 Lincoln Place, apartment 2C, Brooklyn, New York, 11238. Again, that's 292 Lincoln Place, apartment 2C. And that goes for not just Maxim, but actually all of the, both Condé Nast and Hearst magazines. They're HQ'd there now. They had to cut some costs, so they said, let's move to Brooklyn. And they, he would get, they would There's get no fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> they would get fireworks for free. And they would like, I mean, just crazy stories about the kind of stuff they would get for free. And even today, going to Cosmopolitan Magazine, I mean, the last time I was over at Cosmo was 2010. So maybe not today. But um, you would just see all the beauty products they had. And all. I mean, you get some swag when you write at some of these places. Uh, well, that's, that's the benefit. I mean, you don't make as much money as you might somewhere else. If you're on staff, you don't make necessarily unless you're a high editor unless you're a high editor in what you do now tell me about your your show right now agora fabulous are you still performing it at all no i'm doing a new show called love and other indoor sports and i did that for the first time it debuted in norway in oslo in may of this year with that do they speak english better than we do yeah they totally do they're so so much smarter they're so smart and i'm like what are you guys doing shut up and they (laughs) they speak just so well and of course they know more about our government than i do and i'm just like shut up and they're thinner and they walk around everywhere and I'm just like no and I'm like shut up shut up you jerks they can tolerate the cold it's real weird so it's um at a theater called the other theater which is uh, I can't pronounce it right but it's like detendre theatret okay (laughs) which is totally bad it Norwegian kind of looks like English spelled by a drunk very drunk person (laughs) so some of the stuff you can get you're just like oh there's just more consonants um so I did it there and it was great it was so much fun and I've performed there before I performed there in 2010 I brought Agora Fabulous there but this is a new one and uh it was great I mean it's just a great community over there of of artists and weirdos and cool people you've done such an incredible job of like cultivating a following that allows you to like travel all over the world and do your do your shows and like write it's these web books. videos it's web videos honestly that's what has gotten me more opportunities and thank you than anything else like a group brought me over to germany in 2008 to talk about political humor because of the sarah palin videos that yes. i started doing with my friend just for fun and they you know they saw the videos before we got picked up by huffington post they just saw them on youtube getting passed around and they liked them and they were like want to come over and i was like yes and these people in norway my friends who i go to visit there um they run an arts organization and they saw clips from a workshop i did of agora fabulous that i just put on youtube that different people passed around so it's really their web videos can get you or they could they still can, I think, help you really build relationships. Did that help you get your book deal, you feel like? I think web videos did because my agent found me because he saw a video of me on Nerve interviewing Jonathan Ames in a bathtub and he thought it was funny. And then he Googled me and read some of my writing. And so he that's how he said, you know, do you want to write a book? Do you Are you interested in book writing? And I was like, yes, sir. So I think the videos are often a calling card. And then from the f- book, because it was a memoir, how were you able to segue into 
Um, now you're writing what would be considered young adult. Yeah. Um, is that fiction or is that nonfiction? Fiction. Okay. So yeah. how were you able to segue from memoir to young adult fiction? That was my agent's idea. He was super smart about it. I'd, I'd basically written about my whole life up until the point I didn't have a, a whole lot left. You're like, I'm going to need like just a couple years. If you can just give me a couple years. I got to just live. <laughs> and I mean, we've been doing cool things with the book in terms of like trying to make it into other forms. Um, but what does that mean? Like other forms of media, like taking it, the oh. book and trying to convert it into into other outlets where you might see it on a flickering box at some point. In terms hopefully. of... Hopefully. Yeah, uh, no. Uh, Agora Fabulous. Agora Fabulous. So that's fun, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a bestseller, you know, it didn't, it didn't blow anyone's mind away. It sold fine, but it didn't, it didn't do like what the Glass equal, Castle numbers. What equals the bestseller and what equals fine? I would say... What for in my mind, what equals a bestseller is uh, if it hits the New York Times bestseller list for like a week, okay. <laughs> and then it's fun. And then I'm like, okay. And you know, I never made the bestseller list, but it got in the hands of the right people, I think, who were like, okay, we'd like to see more from this person. And that's how, in part, how we got this young adult deal. And by right people, you mean uh, people who who adapted to film and television, or you mean uh, yeah, or editors too, for um, editors who might like I wrote. Agora Fabulous for William Morrow, and uh, which is a division of HarperCollins, and then I'm writing two other books, the YA books for Harper Teen, which is another division of HarperCollins. Are they connected books or were separate ideas? They're separate ideas. The first one is called Great. That's the one that comes out next year, and it is uh, inspired by The Great Gatsby, but set in modern times with teenage girls, um, set in the Hamptons. By the way, not a popular subject. <laughs> I know it's going to go nowhere. <laughs> I hope it's, uh, I mean, I really hope. The cover is very sexy. It's got a very sexy young lady giving a very alluring look to the is camera. Is that true? Yes. She's in a pool. Foreshadowing. And um, she's just this very sexy girl with this kind of me- slightly messy eyeliner staring in the camera. It's very. And I feel like that's your forte is being able to talk about sex and make it funny and talk about how messy it is and talk about it in a real way. Yeah. And there's in, in great there is some it's it occurs mostly off the page. But there is some there are, there's some shenanigans. I just went through it actually. And initially I had put um, four letter bad words in it. And then I went through and I just told my editor, I was like, you know what, I'm going to take all of them out because this isn't, this isn't some first amendment fight I'm fighting. Like, it's not like my character who's 16 years old needs to say fuck you to somebody. Absolutely, It was just, it's just how I talk, but I don't think that's how this kid needs to talk. And I want as many kids as possible to be able to read this book. And there are some parents and school teachers and librarians who will just, you know, I, like my friend is a librarian at a school in China, of all places. It's an American school, and they have to put a blue sticker on any of the books that have swear words in them. So I was like, well, I don't want a blue sticker on my book. And there's a lot of places where. Except if it precedes Kim Jong il. Yeah, then it's fine. <laughs> then it's totally fine. But so I'm just like, uh, I want as many kids as possible to be able to read it, so I'm going to take the no no words out. That's just for me for this particular book. And Maybe in future I'll swear in a book. Did you already come up with the idea for the third one, or you were like, hey, I know that there's going to be the a follow up? The third one is inspired by Lord of the Flies. It is tentatively called Believers, and it's inspired by Lord of the Flies, but with girls from an evangelical Christian school in Texas. In, outside Which Houston. is where you taught before you started writing, right? I did, yeah. I taught I taught in the Southwest, and it was amazing, right by the border, right near El Paso. In our next When You Come Back on Employee of the Month, which is a secret way to rope you back in yeah, for coming for another episode. Yeah, I would love to do it. I want to hear more about those books and also coping with 
agoraphobia and all of these things that you've struggled with and still managing it's <laughs> to Prozac. do more than most of us. I know, it's but- It's so much Prozac, dude. It's also, it's no, it's mainly you. It's really you. I mean, you are so prolific and at the same time, I've struggled with some really crippling issues and I, I just admire you so, Thank so much. You. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing more. Thank you, my dear. Um, thank you. And uh, thank you so much for being on Employee of the Month. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. And I feel very comfortable. We're in a little studio, but I feel very comfy and small places. Agoraphobes are generally afraid of big wide open spaces or big crowds of people but just two people hanging out in a little like sound box is great. It's like a fort. We're in a little sound booth at Six Point Harness which is a fantastic animation studio. Thank you to Six Point Harness. Please go get Agora Fabulous and you can also go to Sarah Benacasa's website to check out um, what she's up to. Um, thank you so much, Sarah Benacasa, for being on uh, Employee of the Month. It's such a joy and privilege to have you here. Thank you, Katie Lazarus. This feels great. Thank you so much. Okay, good. Thank you for listening to my interview with Sarah Benacasa. Uh, hope you enjoyed this episode of Employee of the Month show. We're going to have two live episodes coming up. I'm very, very excited. Uh, one in July at UCB in New York, and then in September at the Bell House in Brooklyn. And I cannot be more thrilled about both of those shows, but particularly the Bell House. Um, it's a new place for us to go, and it's a really big venue, so I'm hoping to fill it up. Uh, so get the word out to your friends. If they live in the Triborough area or if they have time off, they should come. September 18th. You can check out the website employeeofthemonthshow.com to find out more about who will be on those live tapings. Thank you so much for listening. I'm a fan of yours. I've never met you, but I can tell I'm a fan of yours because you're a fan of mine and that just breeds um, a sense of validation. It does. It brings joy. But then what if you're like listening and you're listening as a hate fan? What's that called? A, a hand? What if you're a hand? Then do I feel that same way? I do not. All right, so I think I am probably a fan of yours. That's what I will say. Thank you so much. On behalf of all of us here at Employee of the Month, and by us, I mean me and my imaginary friends. No, I really actually just mean my editor, Joel Arnold, and myself. Thank you. Talk to you soon.